This is Show Up as a Leader, a show from People Forward Network, helping you maximize your positive impact on the world by becoming your best, fully authentic self. Hey, everybody. Sit back. Enjoy this conversation. I could have talked to Brian McCormick for hours. We had such a great time. We had wonderful laughs. We had really heartfelt conversations about such important work of what it takes to have more human connected workplaces. If you're not familiar with Brian, you want to be. He is the CEO and founder of an incredible company called Hummingbird Humanity, and they work in the spaces of diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as company culture and employee experience. And just he does such incredible work and has so many wonderful nuggets of wisdom. And so before we get into a couple highlights, please make sure to head on over to either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser and write a review and rate the episode. It makes such a big difference. And so a couple of things that you're going to want to listen for is when Brian talks about the value of owning our messes and cleaning up our messes and how we approach that, how we engage with being receptive to feedback and having learning moments, the value of sharing our own story and how that actually helps us connect with others. And really why we need to, at an organizational level and an individual level, really start to lean in and learn about and value and pay attention to the lived experiences of others who are different than us. And that even if we don't agree with people, even if we don't share the same beliefs, that we can still learn enough and be open-minded enough to treat other people with respect and honor them as a fellow human being. I think you're going to love this conversation, so sit back and enjoy. Brian, my humanistic, I don't know, brother from another mother, I'm super excited to be having this conversation with you (laughs) and spending time with you. And we're just going to jump off the bat of our latest book, which is now, gosh, two years old, is called Rehumanizing the Workplace. And your book that will be coming out in early 2023 is Humanity in the Workplace. So right off the bat, we have so much to talk about. (laughs) We are kindred spirits, but we know that already. We do. So one of the things that I just love is your focus is on amplifying the voices of the unheard. Talk more about that, why you're passionate about that, like what you do, and what does that mean to amplify the voices of the unheard? First of all, Rosie, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So let's see. If I think about it from the big picture perspective first, when I think about amplifying the voices of the unheard, the systems of workplaces today have been really designed, the systems, the cultures really were designed by and for cisgender straight white guys. Now, I want to be really clear here, by the way, that doesn't mean that all the men with those identity that identity are bad guys. They happen to have privilege that they didn't create, and we want them to be part of this work, and many of them are to say, hey, how do we do this better? But I think what's really key there when I think about amplifying the voices of the unheard is if it's that identity group that is the group that has informed how we do work today, then we need to we need to really bring the other voices into the conversation as we make decisions around culture and organizational policies and procedures and just how we work and how do we define professionalism. So there's so many examples of those systemic realities. 
the other side of it, I take it back from the individual level is I worked in corporate America for many years. I'm a gay man. I'm a person with a disability. I actually have three disability identities. I'm HIV positive. I battle anxiety and depression and I'm sober. And so those are stories that I share to partly just to let others know that there are people like you out there who have these stories and not everyone's comfortable sharing them. I have the opportunity to share and I want others to know they're not alone. And I think that's part of it is, is our stories as just individuals, your story, Rosie, my story. I, I think about every person on the Hummingbird team that I've had a chance to meet. So many of those stories aren't getting the opportunity to sort of see the light of day and certainly not to the point of systemic change. So I like to also remind us every time that we can make a decision is to think about not only the systemic part of it, but let's think about the Rosie who's impacted or the Brian who's impacted. So how do we take it down to that individual? So it's sort of like this two sort of two-dimensional way we, we think about the, that amplifying voices. I think the last thing I'll just mention is the things that we get wrong sometimes and sometimes, you know, when we learn something new, we realize, I wish I would have done this differently before. So I was an HR person for a long time. I have analyzed more engagement survey data than I can, like, you know, can sort of describe over the years. And I think I did good work. I made good plans. I felt really confident about it. I learned a lot. I asked questions. I did all the things that I would have, you know, people taught me to do and that I learned and I researched and all of that stuff. But I realized, though, as I really started to do this work, where realizing that there were unheard voices that weren't getting to the surface as we're making decisions, whatever that looks like, small, big, or everything in between, is that when I was analyzing survey data, when you analyze it at a population level, whether it's a team or a department or a function or organization, the majority population, their voice is what really surfaces. And so if you don't take the diligence to say, what do the other voices, what are they experiencing here? If you don't have the information to analyze it, then you can't do that. But even if you have the information, you have to intentionally look at the data through different lenses to say, what are these people with these unique identities in this workplace? What are they experiencing? And I have to say, I, I didn't do that for the most part. So now our survey data is, and the way we do surveys at Hummingbird is built on that concept of we're going to start with, we're going to ask lots of great questions and we're going to ask lots of identity questions. And then we're going to run different analyses on that data to identify themes around intersectionality and how people with different lived experiences, how they're experiencing this particular workplace culture, and then take that insight to then make actionable solutions and changes in that organization. So those are maybe three different lenses. You always get more than you bargain for with me. I just want to just to say that up front. I love it. My brain is spinning. So first thing I just want to say is, you know, what's so funny is probably not the right word, but you come from HR. And I just keep wondering, when is that industry going to change its name? Because we're not human resources, right? Like we, we're people. And so resources get used up and spit out. And it's so the antithesis of, of human. When people say people are our greatest asset, they're not an asset, right? It takes the human out of it, even though that's not the intent. Totally. So this is actually, I love that you brought this up because this is a key part of why I wrote my book. I'm going to offer a different perspective or a twist on what you just shared because I agree with it, but I have a point of view on it. So I've had the benefit of being an HR person and spent many years as an HR person. And with deference to the amazing and very challenging work that HR people do, particularly over the last few years, generally HR people aren't trained or have the skills or equipped to do this DEI work. 
And by the way, that actually generally works vice versa. A lot of DEI professionals aren't equipped to do HR work. And one of the things that I think a lot of DEI people miss is organizational change and organizational communications, which are essential in driving culture change. So the two need each other, right? So that's one thing I've been thinking about. And of course, there's this, I'm speaking in generality. So there's always exceptions to anything I'm going to say, like that, that has a general, a general application across a group of humans. What I would say though, is that I also think that the DEI arena, the first part of the reason why it's become an important role in organizations is because of systemic oppression and the impact systemic oppression has on how we run our organizations. The other part of it is as HR has become a strategic function, which is good business, I'm all for that, HR has largely lost its focus on heart and soul. And so DEI has become heart and soul. And what we're seeing now is that that role is evolving to be the chief culture officer, the chief purpose officer, the chief heart officer. And so what I think we, and this is, I offer this in the book, I think that we need to get to is actually there's two jobs there. There is a Maybe it's chief human capital officer, maybe it's chief human resources officer, maybe there's a better title, but who runs the practice of HR, the management of the investment in humans and work. And there has to be some business strategy behind that. But I think there's another C-level person, which is, let's call it the chief purpose officer, which is responsible for employee experience, organizational culture, social impact, well-being, DEI. So that purpose part of the organization, I think those two roles both need to be on the C-level team because we ask typically ask chief HR officers to do both those hats. And some really amazing chief HR officers can like navigate between those two sort of realities that have tension between them. But most humans, that's really hard. And I think you just need two different voices representing those two different perspectives because Humans are the only ways that our organization works. We can't all be all things to all people. What comes up for me is we always say, this isn't a solo journey. Like, yes, there might be someone who purpose and, and culture, you know, rolls up to them. But let's be honest, culture is not the chief culture officer, or chief purpose officer or CEO's responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. But you have someone, right, that is kind of like the conductor that helps bring all of the stakeholders in. And really, everybody plays a role. Which I think it really gets into when you think about having this more human workplace, what are you seeing as required of leaders today? I think the first thing I'll say, which is is an important transition from a few of the messages I just shared, is you can tell that I'm passionate about this message. I believe in this message. I also would offer... I don't profess that I have all of the answers. Like I'm always learning every single day. So I think part of it is, I think curiosity and the desire to learn and grow has always been important for leaders. I think it is in a different way today, which is I think typically we would have focused that on skills and you know tangible skills that are related to driving return on investment or driving a project forward or things like that. And some of those were people leadership and people management skills. But now what we have to really include is understanding the lived experiences of the individuals that we work with and we lead and how do we embrace that beautiful and amazing and unique diversity to contribute to the success of the organization. So that's a new twist on this, right? And then the questions then from there are, okay, how does that change how we run organizations? What do we need to do today to ensure that we create environments where humans thrive? Because when the humans at your workplace are thriving, your business will thrive. Like there's a cause and effect there that has, uh, there's some great data and studies. I'm not going to try to quote it all that say like that actually works. And what I also get is that plays out differently in 
every workplace and every organizational culture because it's all different groups of humans. When I offer those messages around, here's my point of view on what should happen, and you sort of did this naturally, Rosie, was, okay, well, that's a great starting point for a conversation. Where do we go from here? And I think that ongoing exploration and conversation around what is humanity in the workplace, what does that look like at this organization with this group of humans, I think that's really important. I also think something that I have really leaned into, and actually I put out a blog almost every month at the first of the month, and we do it sort of in a unique way at Hummingbird, which will lean into what I'm about to say is one of the other things that I think leaders need to do is when I write a blog, then I ask a Hummingbird team member to write a response to my blog. And they don't always agree with me, by the way, but I encourage them. I'm like, please, if you don't agree with me, say that. I want that. That's the... That is what I want us to demonstrate, that it is okay to have healthy dialogue and conversation. And I will say the first blog that came out was about how companies can respond to current events and activities that are happening in the world around us. And an amazing human on Hummingbird's team, Ben Green, wrote the response blog. And there were some things that I had done that Ben wasn't happy about. And he talked about it in the blog. And I read it. I was like, can we post this? And I'm like, yes, of course we can. And it's completely okay. So I think that's part of it is engaging in that and being comfortable with that feedback and that dialogue and saying, hey, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the perspectives. I don't have all the lived experiences. And so I'm going to need help from the people that I work with and the people that I lead or manage. And what I've had to really lean into is it is really phenomenal if someone is courageous enough and brave enough to say, hey, CEO, (laughs) this doesn't work for me. It doesn't feel good or you got this wrong. Now, I also have a responsibility in that, right? I have to create the psychological safety. I have to create the space to say like, this is okay. This is how I want us to work together. But they have shown me a significant amount of care, respect, and trust if they're opening that door to say, Hey, I need to share something with you. So th- those are a few things I think about is leaning, you know, being curious, being continually exploring what is humanity in the workplace, leaning into the understanding of lived experiences and inviting feedback. Those are a few things that I think about. Of course, vulnerability, empathy, some of those things are going to sort of naturally come in line about traits. But I've been trying to think about this conversation and the what are the actions we can take? Because I think that's a really helpful way to to offer some wisdom from my experience. There's so much goodness. And I love that you keep coming back to lived experiences and we have to understand it because we all are going to have biases. We all have our own lived experiences. And unless we are willing to lean in and listen and believe someone else's, like not dismiss it, not discount it, it's their lived experiences. How can we say that isn't true? Or how can we say that didn't happen? I want to go back to the data piece because I love that you talk about it's for each unique organization, because I will tell you when we do culture surveys with our clients or when we're talking to a prospective client, and we always get the question of benchmarking, but a lot of the benchmarking, what is that benchmarking against? And is that actually honoring the unique needs of your organization or you're lumped into an industry that maybe isn't quite a fit for you? And so anyway, so I love that, you know, you focusing on what are your people saying? Because every organization, just like every human being is unique, and there's some maybe common core practices that we know we need to have in place from a business standpoint, from a human standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, that increase the likelihood that people can thrive. But at the end of the day, you still have to look at who are your unique people and your unique talents. So I just, I love that. The thing that 
I, I'm curious about is you have the benefit of, I know you say you're a reluctant CEO, but you know, starting your own organization and you can set the tone and you can set the culture. But when you think about some of these organizations, whether they're big or small, and they're trying to lean in, they're trying to do the right things. And it's really uncomfortable for people. Like there's just so much in this that I know can feel so messy that people just don't want to touch it and they don't weave it into the fabric of the organization. So what are some of the things that you have found successful, not just at your own organization, but with some of your clients that are helping them really embrace what does it mean to have a more human workplace and a place where people truly are, do feel like they belong and that their lived experiences matter? Wow, Rosie. Okay. I have like 17 things that I'm going to say all at the same time. Again, I'm super not passionate about this work at all. So um, it's terrible how unpassionate you are about this. I know. It's really disappointing. I'm sorry for everyone who's listening. So, um, no, thank you for being with us, of course. So, I want to just mention two or three quick things about our the survey methodology, just to, that I think just sort of popped in my head as I was hearing you talk about that piece of the puzzle. When we do our, I've already mentioned this, um, but you know, I, I was an HR person who would get survey data. I'm not a data scientist, and so I would do the best I could with analyzing that data. I think the data today, you need to have a data scientist. And we have that person and we have two of those people at Hummingbird who help us do that analysis. Because I think that's so important to be able to look at the data through those lenses. But I think that's just so important. The other thing that we do that's different that our clients have really appreciated. So that's one of those pieces is we do deep analysis and we emerge key themes. Another piece of the puzzle, rather than doing, typically we have like red, yellow, green is sort of like the way the data is presented. We have four levels. So we have, this is exceptional. We have this category, which is the broadest category, which is this group of data is just fine. Like you're humming along, all good. We have a category that's called transition and it's either transitioning up or down. So it's either coming to good or it's going to like, this is critical. And then we have critical and our green is actually blue on the colors because green is hard for those who are colorblind to see. And then we all, the last thing we do is we don't only provide the data. We also provide some recommendations as thought starters for here's how you use this information to actually drive change in your organization. Cause realizing we're, that's what we do, right? So let's borrow from our expertise and start the conversation. And then if they want help with that, we can help them build plans and strategies and all of those things and do some of the implementation. So that's one thing I wanted to share. And I think the next thing I wanted to offer was one of the things that I like to say when we're talking with our leaders is how we do this work at Hummingbird is a little different. So I think DEI work has a problem, probably has a variety of problems, but the one I'm going to focus on is, and not to say it's not important, and I, I love all the DEI practitioners, and I think we need all of us doing all the different things we're doing. That said, I think so much of the way that we have historically approached this work has been focused on igniting shame, blame, and guilt. And when that happens, we put people in a corner and then they're going to go into fight, flight, or freeze. When someone is in fight, flight, or freeze, they're no longer engaged in the conversation. If they're not engaged in the conversation, they're not learning. So what we do is we take the approach from an organizational perspective to say what our goal here is to ignite shared humanity, build bridges of trust and connection so that we understand that there's so much that we share as humans. And that opens the door 
for us to then understand how systemic oppression and individual lived experiences play out in the workplace so that those of us, like myself with privilege, can be an ally and an advocate for those who have been marginalized in the workplace. And we believe that that pathway is more effective in reaching the goal that we're looking to achieve, and we have seen that happen. The last piece of it, though, is so some of this is about how we do our assessments and analyze our data and how we bring that to life. Then there's this, like, what's our philosophy piece? The third piece I'll just mention that I think is really cornerstone to our approach is the leadership team has to be actively engaged in the process. Actively engaged for me means they're doing real work because they grew up, like I did, in a time where we didn't learn the soft skills that are now power skills of how to be vulnerable and empathetic and how to lean in with curiosity and how to take feedback from people who reported to us and say that not only do I need to take that feedback, but it's super important for me to be able to be successful. And I won't pretend, by the way, when I started this journey, it was easy for me to like, be like, oh, that felt really good. Thanks for telling me I got it wrong. <laughs> Thanks for telling me I suck. Hugs and kisses. <laughs> yeah. Super awesome. But you know, now it's actually very comfortable for me. And I used to be one of those humans that really struggled with getting feedback. And even people, people are like, feedback's a gift. I'm like, feedback is painful. And now I'm like, feedback is an awesome gift. And it's so beautiful that I get to, to learn from others. So we help leaders go through that journey. The, we have a couple different versions of, of ways that we do that. The two I'll mention briefly are an inclusive leadership coaching approach, which is a one-on-one -on -one coaching journey that we can take individual leaders through. And that has really helped because it's really about that conversation, that dialogue. And that safety of a facilitator or coach helping you down that journey, helping you in those moments where you're like, this feels super uncomfortable. I'm feeling guilt. Because when I say guilt's not helpful, I get it. Be human. Embrace it. but Move past it. But you have to have someone who's really helping you on that journey. The other program that's really our, our sort of signature and most popular program that we offer is called a DEI Learning Circle, and that's a 10-week program for a small group of up to 12 people where they meet for 90 minutes every week over the course of 10 weeks. They get up to an hour's worth of content before each session, and then we facilitate a dialogue around that content. And we start with easier conversations, but then we get to white supremacy in the workplace and how patriarchy impacts the workplace, conversations that weren't happening in the workplace places a few years ago. But we help the leaders embrace those conversations, lean into the conversations, develop the comfort and capability to have that dialogue. And one of the tenets of that program is we say, you are not expected to agree with every piece of content that we share with you or every paradigm or every philosophy. That's not the goal. The goal is to develop the ability to have these conversations in respectful thoughtful ways, because what we do believe is that every human in that room wants to treat other humans with respect and care, regardless of what your sort of core belief system is. That's sort of a general human trait. So we just want to help you do it better and develop skills that you didn't learn earlier in your career as leaders that are essential now. And when all of that comes together, we've really seen some significant organizational shifts, those organizations that lean in at those different levels. And I think that there is such a movement that has been growing in a variety of ways with those smaller group cohort learning, because we do, we learn by applying, we build community. I know Brandon Peel was on a podcast last year. He does a lot with like the purpose activation in circles and bringing people together who are completely intentionally different from one another and creating the groups that way to help foster these discussions. I think it's great. I think that it's a combination of 
yeah, let's give people some things to think about. Uh, think of Adam Grant. You know, we need to rethink. We need to unlearn and relearn constantly. And when we put ourselves with other people and see them in their humanity and have a safe space to unlearn and relearn and have a dialogue and have our thinking challenged, like that's how we all grow. And in order to do that, I can't do that by myself. I have to, whether it's a coach or have peer learning circles or have a trusted mentor, I need somebody who's going to help me see the things that I can't see to help illuminate the shadows that get in my way. I know we do a lot of that work with organizations. And when they're at first like, well, oh my gosh, it's going to be this investment of time and money. Well, you can't just check the box and go, oh, yep, I went to a two hour course or a one day offsite. And now I'm a feedback master. Think again. (laughs) It's not going to happen. Oh, totally. You know, I thought I would share a story just from this week in the spirit of what we're talking about here is how this change happens for an individual and taking it down from the program or the concepts to like a person. So there is a senior leader uh, CFO at one of our clients who has trouble (laughs) accepting and sort of buying into some of the DEI messages because of their cultural religious beliefs. And what I have really appreciated about this leader is when we did the DEI learning circle, they showed up to every session. They read and watched and listened to every piece of content. They engaged in the conversation and said, every time, this is super uncomfortable for me. This is not what I do in the workplace, but I'm going to show up and I'm going to be part of this. And not only that, since then, they have read books. They've had conversations with people. They've explored their own perspectives, and they still have their own internal battles and struggles. But they're a human who wants to treat other humans with respect and care and consideration. And they are rising above their own beliefs and say, well, maybe I need to challenge my beliefs. Maybe I need to explore and learn something different. Maybe I'm not going to believe that, that in the same, this thing, but I need to understand it so at least I can treat those humans with the respect that I want them to have and they deserve. Okay, wait, that is worth repeating. I Because seriously, how often I think we think, oh, we're all supposed to agree and we're all supposed to have the same beliefs. But that is so critical. I mean, like Brene Brown always says, I'm here to get it right, not to be right. And, you know, I want to learn. I want to learn. But what I love about what you shared, because I think there can be this hesitancy, whether it's in DEI work or just really any work where we're challenging self-limiting beliefs, because that's the work I do every day. It can feel unsettling. Well, I grew up with this family or this is my cultural belief. And now I'm the outcast of my family because I'm starting to rethink things or I'm not just falling in line. Like there's a lot that can come with that. And what I appreciate is that, okay, I may do all this learning and whatever, and at least have a broader perspective. It doesn't mean necessarily I'm going to change my beliefs. I could, but I can learn enough that whether or not you and I believe the same thing, I can still treat you as a human being. Absolutely. And actually, I'll share one other story from another DEI learning circle. There was a senior executive, white, cisgender, straight, Christian male, who in the first day of the program said, I'm not going to believe and agree with everything in here, but I'm going to show up. And this was also a leader who did show up, did the homework, engaged in the conversation, which I love because they came in and said, I don't really want to be here, but I'm going to show up. I'm like, great. I'm just glad you decided to show up. During the course of that program, my co-facilitator in that program is a non-binary individual who uses he, they pronouns. After one of the sessions, this executive said, hey, JD and Brian, can you stay after for a minute? Sure, of course. We always make ourselves available. And the executive said to JD, JD, I don't completely understand the he, they pronouns thing, but I know I've been using he, him pronouns, or I've been calling you he and, or, you know, that using those pronouns to refer to you. And if if that's wrong, I just want to apologize because I want to make sure that I'm treating you with respect. 
And I was like, I love that this is the leader who said, I don't agree with this, but is also the one who said, let's, can you stay afterwards <laughs> so I can acknowledge, I want to, I want to make sure that I'm treating you with respect. And that's the kind of stuff that I find. If we focus on the, we have to agree, then I think we've, we were losing the battle. What we need to get to is we're all humans and we want to treat each other with respect. And if we can have a greater understanding, we can do that better. And I think people can get their heads around that. And most leaders are like, well, yeah, that's what I want to do. Thank you for that. So we, I mean, we could talk forever, but here's one of the things I want to make sure we get into this conversation. Are you going to make me be vulnerable now? Is that uh, what you're going to Of course I am. Because, right, you're really great. You've said, like, you, you've talked about being a reluctant CEO. You've talked about, you know, that you're passionate about amplifying the voices of others, but that it's really hard for you to share yourself. And I know that's a journey you've been on. And so it's recognizing, yes, we need to be vulnerable as leaders. And, you know, there's a, oh, but I don't want to share myself. And I know you've been getting better at that and you've been practicing that. So can you talk about how you have leaned into some of these principles and where it's felt good and it helped you and where it's like gotten it wrong or where it's been cringy? For those of you listening, obviously Rosie and I have had a few conversations before today. Let's start with the amplifying the voice of the voices of the unheard and how that connects to my identity. So I am a cisgender white man, Christian. I'm also a gay man and a person with a disability, but those are also invisible identities that I get to choose to share or not share. You also wouldn't be able to tell that I am six feet, six inches tall. So I have a very significant presence. And so I am built for what workplaces would say are like, these are the attributes you need to be a successful leader. And so I do know that has benefited me and, you know, other things like you might say I'm reasonably handsome. That's a personal decision. So, you know, <laughs> oh, Brian, you're, you're um, smashing, darling. You're smashing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. But, you know, the reality is those things all play into success in the workplace, right? So I have to acknowledge that I have a significant amount of privilege. I also really believe in that my work is to make workplaces better for others. And sometimes I can see that I'm an other in that category, right? Like I can put myself in that group because a lot of times workplaces didn't feel like they worked for me. And I struggled. I was actually sharing with friends the other day about one of the places I worked where I felt like I was asked to assimilate. Like, this is what an executive looks like here and you will fit in this model. Like, I'm already taller than that model. So I don't know how, like, it's just not going to fit me. Yeah, you will wear these clothes and talk this way. Totally. And Rosie, you might have figured out I'm not an assimilator. It's just not my thing. And so that was really hard for me. So I think that's part of it. And that's the way that I've tried to, as I built my LinkedIn messaging and channel and community, I focus on sharing stories of others and amplifying those stories because I realize I have privilege, access, and opportunity. And the stages that I have, the, the platforms I have, are give me an opportunity to elevate those stories. What my team at Hummingbird has said to me is, Brian, you got to share your stories too, because people want to hear them and they're helpful and beneficial. So I thought I would just add sort of that background and the context there. Well, you know, I want to pause there though, because I, I'm so glad that your team said that to you, because here's what I have found, and I'm guilty of this as well. I shared this story on previous podcasts at some point in time, but when we were writing our most recent book, like our, I'm proud of both of our books, don't get me wrong, but the first book was very much like a manual, like sharing how-tos and here's client stories, et cetera. And the second book was starting out that way. And our publishers had enough sense that they pushed back and said, but where are you in this? Like, not just your company, but your personal stories. I'm like, no one wants to hear that. And they're like, yes, you do. And then I started thinking, well, yeah, we see ourselves in other people's stories. And when people model courageous vulnerability and model authenticity, 
we feel like we connect to them and we relate and we understand. And if we're just sitting there like coming up as an expert or sharing data, and I know that's my armor when I get vulnerable, like I just go, well, here's the data versus like, oh, I'm going to tell a story. So I, I have this battle all the time. And so I appreciate that you also have that. And I appreciate that your team called you out on it because I think when someone else tells us, no, we want to hear you or we want to see you as a human, it's that reminder of, that's how we connect with others. So for anybody else listening, whether you have a formal leadership role or not, when you think I just need to be about the business or I can't share myself or it's not about me, well, sometimes it can be if it's done with the right intention and it's done with the opportunity to make it safe for others or to create connection. So I just, I, I put that there because I think it's fabulous that your team challenges you on that. So Talk about what you've learned from that and kind of where you've leaned into that and where you're, you still are like, <laughs> I'd rather not. Thank you. This conversation, I have to go now, Rosie. <laughs> he's, um, he's tapping out. Brian's leaving. He's like, I'm out. No, <laughs> I'm very busy. Um, <laughs> I love the question. And I think, thank you for pushing me like the team does. You know, the, the blog that I mentioned earlier around being an inclusive leader means getting it wrong sometimes, or though I know you, Rosie and I were like, no, it means getting it wrong like daily at some point. So it's just part of it. We work with a communications consultant, Mark Travis Rivera, who is wonderful. And I received, I think, five different voicemail messages from Mark saying, Brian, this is the most vulnerable piece you've written. And it's the best piece that you've written. And I'm so grateful that you've shared the story. And and of course, he's gotten to know me really well as he's worked with me to help me share my stories. And he added in like a reference to therapy in the story, which I'm fine with, but he's like, are you okay with mentioning that you go to therapy? I'm like, well, I do. And I talk about it. So yes. And you know, part of what the message there was, is that, Hey, I get it wrong sometimes. And then I get confused and I have to figure it out. And I talk to my therapist and I talk to advisors and people in my circle and I ask for help and guidance. And so I'm getting more comfortable with that. There's part of the reason the book is not coming out until next year. It was going to come out this year is because I have punted finishing my edits on the manuscript because the book does share a lot of my stories and putting that out there into the world is a little scary. It's a lot scary. It's not a little, it's a lot. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. So I'm getting more comfortable with that. A couple sort of practical examples or things that have really happened. One of the things that we're, that many of us and are trying to figure it out, and I'm one of those people is we now work in this virtual environment, many of us, and Hummingbird is a hundred percent virtual company. Everyone works from their home or wherever they choose to work. And none of, none of the employees live anywhere near me. So we, we communicate a lot via Slack and messages, of course, I know this, by the way, but messages land differently when they're in writing than they do if you have a conversation because you miss all of the intonation and the inflection and you miss the nonverbal cues of like, oh, I just said something to Rosie and I can see her face that she's cringing. So I need to like figure out what's going on there so I can like figure that out so we don't have a painful moment. So there've been, I think, four times in the last six months where something that I have conveyed to a team member at Hummingbird that didn't feel good to them. And the good news is each of those times, the team member has reached out to me and said, hey, can we talk about this? It didn't feel good. Because I try to say that up front, like, I'm going to get something wrong. Let's just talk about it and deal with it. One of them, though, it was really interesting, happened back in May. And you know what happened in that moment, I was boarding a plane. It was my third day in a row of being on a plane. I was exhausted. I had been, I had done, done a speaking event. I had done a charity event and I was like, I'm tired. <laughs> I just don't want this to, I don't want to deal with this right now. So I should have put the phone away. 
but I didn't. I was boarding a plane and responding in Slack, and I just was a bit curt. Like it wasn't terrible, but for the other person, it didn't. It really didn't feel good. But then I was really mad at how they responded to me. They're like, hey, this doesn't feel good and we need to talk about it, which is, by the way, what I asked them to do. So it took me about two weeks, two conversations with my therapist, three conversations with my two key leadership team members. They were frustrated with me at a couple of points. Like one of them, <laughs> he went on, he's like, I'm going to go on a walk now because this is not who I signed up to work with. Like he was so frustrated. And what I finally realized was I was defaulting back to so many of the the things that I had learned in my career earlier on. And some of it was also how I'd been treated. So I'm like, cause I'd been, I'd sort of challenged a leader like this person was challenging me. And I'm like, and I got the smackdown. And cause that was like, that is not how we work here. And I was like, why can he talk to me like this? I'm like, because the world has changed and that's how it should be. I was wrong. So we did finally have a great conversation and he shared what his experience was in that, you know, three, five minutes lack exchange. I shared what I was intending because he asked me to share that. So that's not always the right answer, but he asked me, he's like, just tell me what was, was happening for you. I just want to understand it. But as I was sharing that, I said, and actually, as I'm just talking, as I hear what you say, I'm going to share with you because you've asked, but I got it wrong every step of the way. And I'm just going to own that. And I'm sorry. I appreciate you helping me have this learning moment. Thank you so much. That was really tough for me. Like That was like two weeks of like angst for me. And I also caused angst for him because he's like, I want to deal with this. And I asked him to wait for the conversation, but I didn't want to show up for that conversation until I could actually be the leader that I want to be. And we're great now. And he's a wonderful part of the Hummingbird team. And I appreciate that he gave me the opportunity to have that conversation. There's something you said that I just think is we all could use from. So two things from that. One, thank you for sharing that. And I will say that there can be this tendency when we've screwed up that either we run and hide and then just don't deal with it and move on, which now it becomes an elephant in the room, or we deal with it too soon. And there's something to be said of when we're not in a good headspace is not a time to have important conversations. Circling back to clean up a mess when you're in a better spot and you're willing to be curious and willing to lean in is way better than trying to push through because you're, it's probably going to make it worse in the moment. And I think, you know, that old saying, don't go to bed mad. Well, sometimes maybe you do need to, because you need to get to a place of neutral at the very minimum neutral before you're going to respond or lean in. Cause you can't, you're going to be shut down. You're going to be defensive. All those things. The other thing that I love that you said is like, well, I'll share this with you, but I got it wrong. But thank you for this learning moment. Like, how often do we say that to someone? I'm going to use that phrase. Thank you for this learning moment. I love it. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, what I have learned through all of this is that when I choose to be vulnerable, when I choose to share my story, my experiences, my, I got, when I choose to apologize, I got it wrong and own my stuff, whatever it is. My experience is, and you'd have to ask the people to see if this is what they experience, but I think it is, that they start to trust me more and they know that it's okay to say, hey, Brian, that didn't work for me and let's talk about it. And they know that I want to learn and that I want to do better. But that starts with me sharing my stories early on. Like it doesn't start from that moment. Like I have to do that before that moment. And so one of the things that I learned very early on in this journey of being a DEI practitioner, when I was appointed to be the head of inclusion for Tapestry, which is the home of Coach Kate Spade and Stuart Weitzman. I had a conversation with one of my closest friends, a woman who knows my whole story. And her response was immediately without missing a beat. No, like, that's awesome. I know, like, I'm excited for you. Her response was, they asked the white guy to do it. I was so hurt 
and so hurt and and so hurt and that that, that it, we don't we're actually not friends anymore. We don't hate each other or anything, but we just don't communicate anymore because I was so bothered by that and I had to deal with that. Then the first colleague that I really remember at work coming to me to have this conversation, to have a conversation with me about my role was a black woman at the company who said, I'm really confused why the white guy is doing this. So they both basically said the same thing. And the good news is the first conversation helped prepare me for the second conversation. What I've learned though is that is a bias that people have or a perception that people have. And there's a why behind it. And I don't blame anyone for that why. So what I do is I get in front of a group of people, you know, when I'm on a stage, I say, so I just want to say and acknowledge that I'm going to guess that some probably, maybe possibly all of you are like, why is the white guy on stage talking about diversity? Let's just get the elephant in the room out of the way. And almost every time the entire audience nods their heads <laughs> and they smile, right? So we break the tension and I say, so here's a couple things. I, first of all, yes, I'm a cisgender white guy. I have privilege. I want to acknowledge that I have privilege. I believe that I should use my privilege for the greater good. And that's part of the reason I do this work. And there's lots of other guys like me. So I, I just want to say like, we should embrace those humans who want to be part of this change because we need them to be part of this change. And then I say, you know, there's more to my story. I talk about being a gay man and a person with a disability and some of those experiences. You know, I talk about one of the stories I like to share is I came out in my early 20s when I worked in the service industry. And when I moved into HR and went to a corporate office in human resources, I went back in the closet because I didn't think I could be out in corporate America. So I share a story like that. And then I say, I'm going to acknowledge, like, I'm not a person of color. I'm not a person with a physical disability. I'm not a woman. I've not lived in your shoes. I will do my best to understand and empathize based on my experiences to connect with yours. And I'll use my privilege to do whatever I can to help make the world better for you. And that's why I'm here. And what I find is that all of a sudden I now have a connection with that audience. They trust me. I can reach them in a different way. And I get lots of great messages afterwards, often from people who are have some of the shared lived experiences that say, I'm not brave enough to share this in my world yet, but thank you for sharing it. And you're, you know, on stage, it helped me feel better. So I think that's also a lesson learned. Like you don't have to do it on stage like me. That's part of what I choose to do. But if you work with a team or work with colleagues and you want to build those bridges of trust, share your story. And it makes a big difference. It does. And when you share yourself, you give other people permission to do the same. So speaking of sharing your story, we're going to continue to keep the tables on you. And this is a question I ask all of my guests. So Brian, what is a self-limiting story that you still tell yourself at times and when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader and maximize your positive impact in your life? I shouldn't be a CEO. That's probably the biggest one that happens today. I think there's probably two versions of that story. There's the the way I joke about it is people shouldn't be able to self-appoint themselves CEOs. How does that happen? So, you know, there is that story that isn't helpful necessarily for me because the reality is I have the opportunity and the privilege and the honor to lead and to lead an organization like Hummingbird and people show up and say, like, Brian, we're here because we believe in you. The other version of that, which there's a humility in this, but I think at times it can also be humbling, which is 
like I have gotten farther in my career than I ever thought was possible 20, 25 years ago. Like this was not what I imagined like would happen when I got to be in my mid forties. So I think those, you know, that's, that, that's grounded more in humility, but, but there's part of that that says like, well then do I deserve this? And so I have those questions. So the way I navigate through that is one is I name it, I acknowledge it. So the first step is acknowledging you have a problem. I share about it. I don't pretend that it's not you know, particularly the CEO part of it, that's not part of something I'm struggling with. I've hired COO at Hummingbird. He's now the president and COO of Hummingbird, who is a former CEO. And I've asked him to challenge me and to guide me. So I've said, there's someone who's done this job before and I get to work with him and he gets to help me do better in my role. And I've also engaged an executive coach. So the three current senior leadership team members of Hummingbird, we all work with the same executive coach and she's a part of our leadership team and she coaches us individually and collectively. And she's a former C-level leader. And so I go to her for advice and counsel and she's helped me with some of these conversations and in different ways about how to be a CEO, about what I could do differently. One of my favorite conversations was she said, let me pull out this profile of a CEO that I wrote when I was hiring a CEO for one of my you know, former Fortune 500 companies that I was the head of HR for. Let's look at the profile of what the CEO needs to be successful. And she read through all of those. She's like, do you have all those things? I'm like, I, I think so. She's like, you have all of those things. You can do this. So, you know, it's, I, I think a big part of it is, you know, like I said, acknowledging that I have a problem <laughs> and asking for help and letting others help me. That part is super hard, by the way, is the asking for help and letting them help. We're not meant to do this alone. So I love that you're tapping into the wisdom and support of others. I think that when we're in that space of telling ourselves a self-limiting story, we can feel like we're the only one, which is why I ask every guest this, because I want to normalize it. And when we're in that space of feeling like it's just me, we tend to want to shrink and hide rather than reach out, right? And like either work through it, name it, ask for help. So I love that. All right, Brian, same with you a little bit more. Spotlight on you. Are you ready for quick questions? I'm ready. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is? What is living authentically? It is sharing your stories and just being real. Love it. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? Acknowledge it and ask for help. Or I say, you know what? Today is not the day and I'm going to, I'm going to lean on someone else and I'll do my part tomorrow. Sometimes, by the way, I also just take a break. I should just totally own this. Like my team knows this though. Like Brian will like just hail to say, I have to tap out for this week because I can't be the best version of me. So it's okay to take a break. Fantastic. Right. We, we can't, we can't be on all the time. So I love that. What is something people would be surprised to know about you? Ooh, um, I've given away so much already. Oh, I know one. Um, but the one I always go to, which isn't about me, is my dad is an Olympian. So I'm going to mention it because it's super cool. But the one that about me is I'm actually also a benefit auctioneer. So I help nonprofit organizations develop their charity galas and I can go on stage and help them raise money and fund the work that they do. And I love doing that. Okay, you got to give your best auctioneer like voice. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. What would I say? <laughs> you know, my, my auctioneering style, I call it stand-up comedy with a purpose. So it's actually, you've heard some sort of some of it. So it's, but I think the, the big part of it is I'm looking for a hundred, a hundred over here, a hundred over here, a hundred over here, 200, 200 right here, 200, 300, 300. Okay. Sold for 300. But I also like to do the going once, going twice. No, seriously, I'm going to sell it. Do you want... <laughs> 
500. Come on. Seriously. It's for the children. It's for the children. So if you want a benefit auctioneer, call up Brian, his side hustle. Love it. Okay. What is your favorite go-to movie? Uh, my favorite go-to. Oh, um, there's so many of them because I'm a big movie buff. The Contender is possibly one of my favorite movies of all time. Joan Allen as a powerful woman in that role who has to face such her sort of terrible things as she's um, vying for the pro- the vice presidency. I'm like the stature and the composure, but the, how the story is told and it gives you a perspective of like what it's like to be a woman in the workplace. And it's just also just a beautiful movie. So that that's probably one of my all-time favorites. All right. What's your go-to song? You know what? So I'm a big country music fan, so I'll just acknowledge that. So I have a bunch of songs, but my favorite music today, so it's more a bit of a genre, is um, I'm a big fan of Bridgerton, and uh, they do the pop songs with classical instruments, and I love that. So like, I like to play that in the background as much as I can. That's awesome. All right. What's something you can't live without? Pizza. Uh, pizza. <laughs> What do you put on your pizza? What do you put on your pizza? Pepperoni. I'm like pizza, Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> That's the fun answer. The the really sort of serious answer is I am really blessed to have just amazing humans in my life who show up for me and who help me because I have my stuff, right? I have my mental health stuff and I need help. My sister, when I am in the depths of like depression and I call her and she will find a beautiful way to be like, I care for you and I'm sorry you have to go through this and you have to get up (laughs) and you have to move forward. And my dog Bosco, who is the chief happiness officer for Hummingbird Humanity. And as someone who lives alone, particularly these last couple of years, Bosco is, he's my sidekick and my best friend. And he's such a joy and a pleasure. I love that he's the chief happiness officer. That makes me happy. Well, you maybe kind of already answered this a little bit, but what is something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? Bosco is like probably the the thing that is every day with Bosco. So I'll, I'll add one other thing though. It's been one of the things that's been really cool. I'm a singer. I get on stages to do charity auctions. So I've been a performer for most of my life and I'm a huge Broadway fan. I saw come from away like 15 times. So like I just love shows and performances and at Hummingbird, we get to work with Broadway productions and performing arts organizations. And the combination of this personal passion that I have and this uh, this work that I get to do to help bring stories to the stage that help others feel seen and heard and just know that there are people like them on the in that show or on that, you know, on that stage is a really cool thing that I'm grateful for every day. And last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? I'm so glad that I got to have this conversation with you, Rosie. This was really, really great. And it's always nice to nerd out a little bit and like have, you know, have a kindred spirit to share and learn from. I hope that I always add value and offer something that's helpful for for you, Rosie, and for everyone listening. But I always take something from these conversations as well. So just I'm just grateful that we got to do this. Me too. So I have a closing question. If you could challenge leaders everywhere to practice this one behavior that would create more human workplaces and equip everyone to show up as a leader, what would that be? I think the thing that I would just say first is to share something vulnerable, share something real. I could think that through the handful of times probably in early in my career that a leader or a manager that I worked with actually showed up in a human way. And it makes a huge difference in ways that we don't expect. And when people 
start to trust each other and understand each other as humans, they can also work together more effectively. They have more psychological safety, which they means they can bring better ideas. And there's all of these other things that come from it. So just start with just taking that moment to be vulnerable and share something about yourself. And you'll be surprised at what happens next. Absolutely. I love that. I always say that people want realness and authenticity over polish and perfection any day. So really well put. Brian, we could talk for hours, but just thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for sharing yourself in this conversation. And just thank you for all the wisdom and insights. I super appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And you know what? I, I actually have to say that the last thing that you said there of, yes, it's so easy. I, and I can default to that polish and presence too. Some I, I did it in a podcast the other day. Someone asked me a question and I'm like, I answered in my corporate best corporate voice and my best corporate communications professional. This is your talking point. And I said, I called myself on it and I was like, you know what? Just stop. Let me just give you a real answer. So, you know, I love that I'm aware of that now and we got to put that away and just be real humans. By the way, it's more fun and work doesn't have to be hard. It's not that it's not going to be serious or important or challenging. Sometimes it's hard, but you can have fun and just be real along the way. I'm Rosie Ward and this is Show Up as a Leader. To learn more, head over to peopleforwardnetwork.com and of course, hit that follow button.